0: Invite you to join me in First Corinthians eleven. First Corinthians eleven, seventeen to thirty-four. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, even this morning as we gather here, as your church in Altoona, Iowa, as we come boldly before you in Christ alone, even still our hearts echo, even we've just confessed in song, who are we? Who are we to be loved by you? Who are we? We look at the cross, and we rejoice in the empty tomb. And we know that we are so unworthy. And yet we rejoice in the hope of resurrection. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. Guide our thoughts in this hour as we look at this text, as we come to this passage, We pray that your spirit would work in each and every one of our hearts. And as we come together at this table, as we take this bread and this drink, as we proclaim our hope to one another, we pray that your name would be lifted high, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts, embolden us to go and to reach our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we are your church, your bride we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we come to a well-known passage. A passage that we're in almost every month, at least once a month. 1 Corinthians 11. You probably at some point have heard the, the background of Corinthians. The city of Corinth to which this letter is written. It was a trade port. It was a city from which all corners of the world at that time were touched. And with all these goods from all around the world coming in, so did a lot of different ideas. In fact, it is said that even by pagan standards, Corinth became Um, so corrupt morally that it became synonymous with debauchery and immorality. It was known as a wicked place. We can think of a couple cities like that even in our day. The first one that comes to mind is probably Vegas, right? Las Vegas. It is known for the corruption, for the debauchery that is there. It's the kind of city that Corinth was. And really, the the book of 1 Corinthians is probably one of the first letters written by Paul, and it is a letter written out of necessity. Because the church there in Corinth that was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey, as we see in Acts 18, it had become extremely cliquish. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10-13, to we see that well-known passage Verses 10 to 13. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? These factions had risen up in the church. There was divisions in this church. We'll see that even addressed in our passage here this morning. And yet that is not the most pressing need here in 1 Corinthians. It is not just these factions, these divisions in this church But probably the most serious problem in this church is the worldliness that had seeped in from the city around this church. This was a church that was unwilling to fully break from the morally corrupt culture in which it found itself. So here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to this young church and he's addressing their divisions among them. He's addressing addressing this worldliness that has taken root in this church. It's a passionate letter, written out of necessity. And we see that this corruption in the church has even corrupted the table of the Lord even as they gather at this table, as we will do this morning. They are divided. They are distracted. So as we work our way through this passage, we'll see the spirit of the Lord's table, the meaning of the Lord's table, and a warning regarding the Lord's table. First thing we see is the spirit of the Lord's supper. In verse 17, Paul starts... In the following instructions, I cannot praise you. That should be a clear clear indication to us that he's not going to praise them. He just said, I'm not praising you in this. I'm about to point out something that is wrong. It sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. That's a sad thing when the church gathers and there is more harm done than good. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. See, the first thing that Paul addresses here is this issue of divisions. There are divisions, there are factions among you. This is a problem. In fact, he goes on in verse 19 of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. You who have God's approval will be recognized. There's a couple different address, uh, ideas of what Paul could be saying here. It could be sarcasm. You see, in this church at Corinth, a lot of the division was not just um, between Paul or Apollos or Christ, but it was even among um, socially, economic lines. The rich separating from the poor, thinking that they were better and and more spiritual than the poor. So it could be sarcasm aimed at calling out the divisive mindset that separates this church into isolation as they keep separating from each other until they're all separated, meaning in their own corners. But the reality is that where perversion is tolerated and doctrinal compromise is allowed, disunity is to be expected. When falsehood is allowed in the church, that is going to cause disunity. Because those who stand by the word of God will, by necessity and rightly, separate from those who do not recognize the word of God. There must, by necessity, be division between purity and impurity. There must, by necessity, be division between truth and a lie. There must, by necessity, be a division between believers and the world. And Paul, here in addressing that, he's not not saying that that is a good thing. He's saying that is a bad thing. The division in your body is necessary because you have allowed falsehood into your body. You have allowed unbelievers to gather as the church. You have allowed impurity in your midst. Therefore, division is necessary. That is one of the main issues in the Corinth church is their failure to guard the body and to guard the truth. And when sin is left unaddressed, and when the unsaved are allowed to infiltrate the church, then the church suffers. The gospel itself suffers. That's the first problem that that Paul addresses here, is this division. Secondly, and going along with this division, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. As you come to this table, you don't even really want to be here. You're not focused on what you are doing. Well, how can Paul say this? Well, he goes on to explain in verse 21, for some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. There's a self-focus here, a lack of love. They're not looking out for one another. As they gather as a church, it's all about me. I'm grabbing as much as I can get. As a result, some go hungry. Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? Those who have nothing are being shamed while those... To come late, go hungry. And those who are rich, leave happy. Brothers and sisters, this is a travesty. This is not what should be happening in the church. As they came to this table, it was less about worship and it was all about show. Rather than highlighting the cross and drawing their attention to their hope in Christ, they're highlighting their bank accounts. Look how much I have. Look how great I am. What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? I would not praise you for this. This mind shift Mindset shows either a complete lack of understanding or a complete disregard for the truth. And either way, it is damning. These actions and these attitudes are contrary to the meaning of this ordinance, it is contrary to the gospel itself. That is not the spirit with which we should approach this table. The spirit of the Lord's table is a spirit of selflessness and unity. As we come to this table as a church, we are coming from many different backgrounds. We are coming from many different social and economic standings. We are coming from many different experiences in this past week. And yet we are coming together as one in Christ. This table must have a spirit of unity, a spirit of selflessness, a spirit of hope. And in the Corinthian church, it was all about division. It was all about self. So even as we come to this table this morning, what spirit do you approach the Lord's table with? As you walk into this room and you see this setup up down here? Does your heart kind of sink? Oh, it's going to be another long service. Are you thrilled to celebrate the death and the resurrection and the coming again of your Lord and Savior? Are you excited about the opportunity to gather with your brothers and sisters at this table and to proclaim your hope together in unity? Look what this gospel has done. It has brought us together from all around, from different backgrounds, one in Christ. This is a table of hope. It is a table of unity. Secondly, the meaning of the Lord's table. After calling out their wrong spirit, their wrong mindset as they approach this table, next Paul jumps back into, well, well, what is it then? if it's not about getting what I want, if it's not about me, it's about the cross, it's about unity in the body, what is it about? I pass on to you what I received from the Lord Himself. It is clear here that Paul is not giving his own opinion, but he is speaking authoritatively. As an apostle, this is what I have received from God Himself. This is not my opinion of what this table is. This is what it is. This is how it happened on the night when he was betrayed. Stop there. On the night when he was betrayed. Is that how you would start a victorious gathering of the church? I imagine that that if I was writing this, I would write, as he rose again in victory. And this victorious thing, Paul here starts with, on the night when he was Betrayed. Not that long ago, we were in the book of John. We walked through the night when this happened. This is not just the night when he was betrayed, it is the night when he got down and he washed the feet of his betrayer. It is sh- under shocking circumstances that this beautiful table is established. And really, what Paul even is highlighting here is the purpose behind the cross on the night when he was handed over. There's purpose here. This was not an accident. Our Lord was not betrayed by accident. It's not that God turned his back or closed his eyes for a second. He was working all things. Even in the betrayal of Jesus Christ, even in his death, God was working all things for our good and for his glory. Jesus, on that night, he knew what was coming. And yet, he gave everything for you and for me. And those who are selfish when they come to this table, they deny the Lord who selflessly gave everything for them. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, And he gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Again, the word given there. There is purpose in the cross. There is purpose in the incarnation. In fact, as you walk through this passage, you will see the gospel fleshed out even in this table. You have the incarnation In the body of Jesus Christ, God himself, did not, Jesus Christ did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation and took on himself flesh. He came as a man. He took a body so that it could be broken. So you have the incarnation in his body. You have the cross, his death, and his blood that was spilt. And you have the resurrection. In verse 26, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. That's his resurrection. He has risen from the dead. He has conquered death, and he is coming again. So you have the full gospel here. As you come to this table, we are proclaiming the full gospel, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. His death and His blood that was spilled for us and His coming again. His resurrection. His body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. How easy it is for the church to forget her Lord. How forgetful we are as a people. How many of us even this next week Will by Tuesday have forgotten the things that we have learned today. Even by Monday morning, we'll be living as if we were not sitting here today. How quickly we forget. How prone we are to wonder. The Lord's table is necessary because the Lord's people are forgetful. We need this memorial. Jim, not that long ago, going through Joshua, all throughout the book of Joshua, they set up memorials. Remember what God has done. And as we come to this table, we are remembering what God has done. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and His people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Even as we have walked through Hebrews chapters 9 through 10, we have seen this. Even in verse 8, the new covenant inaugurated on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. Where God does what the law itself could not do and could never do. His blood. Do this in remembrance as often as you drink it. Again, a call to pause and to remember. As we come to this table, we are not just going through motions. This is a call to remember your Lord. Remember the cross. Remember what that means for you, even this week For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing. You're announcing. You see, the Lord's table is not just a reminder, it is an announcement. It reminds the church, and through it, the church announces to the world and to each other that our Lord has died and he has risen again and he is coming again. You are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So, what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? At the Lord's Supper, Christ's church remembers the cross and proclaims the resurrection and return of her Lord. We're remembering the cross and we are proclaiming to one another and to the world around us the resurrection and return of our Lord. It's a solemn time of remembrance. And it's a joyful time of proclamation. Look what God has done. Finally, we see a warning regarding the Lord's Supper. In verses 27 to 34. So. So, anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord. So. So. The sacredness of the Lord's table is found in the importance and the power of its message. Understanding that this is a call to remember. Understanding that this is a proclamation and announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That gives weight to what it is as we do as we come to this table. Eternal significance. Therefore, so, anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy, or unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. In an unworthy manner, unworthily. It is as this Corinth church is coming. They are coming unworthily. It is selfless, it is selfish, it is dismissive, it is divided, it is careless, it is blasphemous. To come to this table in an unworthy manner is to come with blatant disregard for the cross and for its message. It is to come focused on self, my needs and my wants, guilty of sitting against the body and blood of the Lord. It is to take the cross lightly, to purposefully ignore the very thing that we are proclaiming. I think it's important to note here, because I remember as a kid, I'd hear messages on this passage, and I'd come away just terrified. I didn't even want to take communion because what if, what if something's wrong? Paul here is not expecting perfection. He understands that we are sinners; we have all fallen short. He's not expecting perfection, but he is expecting purpose. Think through what it is that you are doing. Be purposeful in your worship as you come to this table. Think of an illustration as a kid. My parents had an antique wicker chair. And I remember one time I was, I was playing, and I, I had an umbrella, and I was like pretending it was a gun or something, and I was hiding between these behind this chair. And, uh, or maybe I was pretending it was a sword. I don't. Know. Somehow, this umbrella went through the wicker chair. And I pulled it out, and I was, oh man, that's bad. But my mom was in the other room, and I kind of liked the sound it made as it went through. So then I kept pushing it through several times, probably 15 other holes. And then my mom came in, and you can imagine she was not thrilled with me. And I remember telling her, it was an accident. Well, maybe the first time was an accident, but what about the 14 other times? That's not an accident. It's one thing to accidentally overlook, it's one thing to accidentally do, but when you are purposeful, that's where the problem comes in. Brothers, we are coming, brothers and sisters, we are coming to this table. And we are coming by the grace of God, and we serve a gracious and a merciful God. but be purposeful in your worship to ignore this table, to purposefully take it lightly, to come and to complain and to not care. That's where the problem comes in. Be purposeful in your worship as you come to this table. Paul goes on here, verse 28, that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. As you come to this table, examine yourself. Check your motives. Search your heart. Confess your sin. Be honest with yourself. As we come to this table, I'm not asking any of you to raise your hand and to come up here and to announce to everyone, this is what I've done this week. I'm sorry. We're simply asking that you be honest with yourself. Search your own heart. There's nothing to hide from yourself. You know and God knows. Confess your sin. And then come to this table joyfully by the grace of God alone. For if you eat this bread and drink this cup without honoring the body of the Lord, without honoring the idea of no regard for, taking this lightly, mindlessly. You are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. It's a terrifying passage that adds weight to this. The idea here of judgment is not eternal judgment. It's the idea of chastisement or punishment. If you come unworthily, if you take this lightly, you will be chastised. God will not overlook your blasphemy. You see, there's a promise that God has given to His church that the gates of hell will not prevail. And if the church will not defend herself, then her Lord will defend her. If we allow error, if we allow falsehood, then God himself will step in and he will chastise us and he will call us to repentance. But as this passage tells us, we should be doing that to one another. We should be doing that ourselves, taking this seriously. That's what he goes on to say in verse 31. If, you would exa- if we would examine ourselves ourselves, Search our hearts. Approach this table with purpose, with awe, with joy, with reverence. If we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. And here, in verse 32, there's a kind of a note on this judgment or this chastisement of God. When we are judged by God. We are, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God punishes us. He chastises us, but but he does not condemn us. We've been saved by grace. In fact, what the Apostle Paul tells us here is that God's discipline in this way flows from God's love. Those of us who are are parents or teachers who have had experience working with kids, we understand that, do we not? So often when we punish our kids, it's not motivated by hate for them. In fact, more than so often, hopefully every time you punish your kids, it's not motivated by hate for your kids. It is motivated by love for your children. It is because I love you that I punish you. It is because I love you that I do not allow you to go down that path. That's what the Apostle Paul is drawing our our minds to here. If you take this lightly, And that's a sign not just of of coming to this table, that's a sign that you've allowed falsehood, you've allowed false teachers, you've allowed disunity in your church itself. And God will not allow that. So search your own hearts. Because God will, out of love, discipline his children. So, my dear brothers and sisters, When you gather together at the Lord's table, wait for each other. So gather, come, wait for each other. Do it as one body, unified. And number two, prepare. If you are really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. But there's two instructions that Paul gives here to this church that has gone so astray, that has allowed falsehood and false teachers and divisions into this church, Paul says these two things. This is where to start. Come purposefully together. Gather as one body. Forget these factions. Forget these divisions. Come together. Wait for each other. And prepare to gather together. If you know that you'll be tempted to to gather for yourself, eat at home. Think ahead. Recognize that weakness that you have and prepare. Eat ahead of time. Gather together, come purposefully prepared to come to this table to worship the Lord. Because the message of this table and the hope that it proclaims is too powerful and too precious to be taken lightly. As we come to this table, we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So come boldly in Christ. Come humbly by grace. Come joyfully in hope. Come seriously in reflection. Come proudly proclaiming the gospel. Come regularly till the Lord comes home or calls us, till the Lord comes back in victory or calls us home. But come. Do not take this time lightly. Take it seriously. Come. Gather with your brothers and sisters in unity. Remember the cross and proclaim your hope together.